0: Good morning. Before we um, open with a word of prayer, uh, today is a high feast day in the life of the church. It is the birthday of the Reverend William Christian. So I thought we would sing happy birthday to Bill before we open with a word of prayer. So happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear William. Happy birthday to you. The second stanza is the old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. <laughs> All right, let's. But happy. Birthday, Bill. We're delighted to have you on staff and part of our team, so God bless you. Let's open with a word of prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always Thy day, the first of days, holy unto Thee, our Maker, our Resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study um, into the history of the Anglican tradition and who we are as Anglican Christians and what are the distinctives of the Anglican tradition And we said last week that with the death of Queen Elizabeth I, King James I ascended the throne. He was James VI of Scotland, uh, became James I of England. He was the, the first of the Stuart kings, and he united those two crowns, the English crown and the Scottish crown. Now, most historians regard the reign of James I as a rather boring time in history, uneventful, certainly compared to what had gone before, the reign of good Queen Bess, Elizabeth I. Everybody knows about Elizabeth I and the defeat of the Spanish Armada and so forth and how she really in many ways put an end or at least put a damper on the religious wars that had so characterized the previous reigns. But no one lives forever. And when Elizabeth died, uh, because she was the virgin queen, because she never married, never produced an heir heir, It was a relative of hers. It was the son of her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, who would ultimately ascend the throne. This was a relatively, as I said, uneventful period compared to the time of Elizabeth, and it would be relatively uneventful compared to what would follow. That is to say, the reign of Charles I. But nevertheless, there were some things that were significant that happened during the reign of King James I. We said that this was a time in which there were some great ecclesiastical lights, people like John Donne and Lancelot Andrews, great poets, great divines, great devotional writers and preachers. So they flourished during the reign of James I. The other thing, of course, of note uh, that is most significant was the translation and the producing of the authorized version of the Bible. The King James Version, which many people today still consider to be the greatest translation of the Bible that has ever been produced. It is certainly a magnificent piece of English prose. There's no doubt about that. But the authorized version of the Bible was produced during the reign of King James I in 1611. Now that's significant for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that if you go back just a few years in time, one of the things that you will notice is that it was against the law, to have the Bible produced in the language of the people. You'll remember that it was William Tyndale who had declared to the king on one occasion that if he had his way, and if God gave him enough years to live, he was determined that the average plowman, the average boy plowing the field, would know as much about the scripture, if not more, than the king of England. So it had been illegal to publish the Bible. Think about that. This is one of the things that you and I need to take into consideration. The Bible is more readily available to us than at any point in history. And yet our knowledge of the Bible is probably at the lowest ebb ever in history, since the publication of the Bible in English. But in those days, people were willing to risk their lives, literally, just to get their hands on the Scripture, because they knew that this was God's Word, and through it He would speak to them. So the publication of the Bible, in English, authorized by the crown, that was a huge leap forward. This meant that if you could read, you could have access for the first time, for many people, access to God's word. So while historians sometimes say that James I was a a time of, well, relative calmness, that it was insignificant compared to those that came before and after really The reign of James I was significant, if for no other reason than that. But James, of course, dies, and who ascends the throne but Charles I? And we talked a little bit about Charles I. Charles I was a high churchman. Uh, He ended up having a running battle with Parliament about who was going to rule the nation. Uh, Parliament was trying to curb the king's power. The king was absolutely convinced that he was God's vessel. He believed in the divine right of kings. And what happened was this ultimately broke into open warfare. It became the English Civil War. You've heard about the roundheads, that is to say the Puritans fighting against the Cavaliers, that is to say the Royalists. And of course the Royalists lose, and Charles I is going to ultimately be brought before Parliament. Imagine this, the king, the sovereign, brought before Parliament, tried for treason against the nation and found guilty. And ultimately, Charles would be beheaded. Then England would go through a period known as the Protectorate. Oliver Cromwell, who was an English general, would come to power. Uh, He was a Puritan. As I said, there was this ongoing battle. The Church of England, by this point, really had embraced the Reformation. But we said that the Reformation in England was a little different than what you found on the continent. And the Puritans were absolutely convinced that the Reformation was a good thing, and that England had made progress, but there was still more progress to be made. And they believed that any vestige of Catholicism, anything that looked like anything that had existed prior to the 95 Theses being nailed to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, all of that had to go. It all had to be purged away. So the Puritans were really just that. They were looking to purify the Church of England. All the ornamentation, for example, the prayer book, The hierarchy of the church with bishops and prelates, all of that sort of thing they felt had to go. And they believed in having kings, but they believed in the king's power really being limited. They really wanted to clip the king's wings, if at all possible. So during this reign of the protectorate, and it really was a reign, uh, they actually offered the crown to Oliver Cromwell... Because he had waged this war against the crown, he didn't feel that he could actually take it. But he ruled with an iron fist, make no mistake about it. And during this time, a great many things that had been part of the church in England since the time of Elizabeth I went away. The prayer book went away, bishops went away. Uh, There were no consecrations taking place with bishops. So they almost lost the whole notion of apostolic succession during this time period. Cromwell, of course, died. His son came into power and would rule over England for about a year and a half, almost two years, but he simply did not have the power or the administrative ability of his father. And Parliament realized that without somebody like Oliver Cromwell, perhaps it was better to have a king after all. And Charles I's son, Charles II, had fled to the continent, lest his fate be the same as his father's. And so Parliament contacted him over there on the continent and invited him back, and Charles II came back, and this is what became known as the Restoration, the restoration of the monarchy. So this was a time of great upheaval and turmoil in England, and yet it's important to understand that God can work even through the bleakest of circumstances, and that is certainly what he did during the reigns of the two Charleses, Charles I and Charles II. In spite of the attempt of Cromwell and others to dampen down anything that was associated with the prayer book and the old ways of doing things, nevertheless, there were some who held on to these traditions. And these traditions not only survived, they actually flourished in many respects during the reigns of the two Charleses. And this is where we pick up the narrative today, with the story of the Caroline divines. These were those who were leaders in the Church of England during the reign of Charles I and Charles II. They were operating during the time of the Protectorate, but they were operating on the down low. They were operating on the down low. The Caroline Divines are really some of the bright lights of Anglicanism. If you really want to understand the Anglican tradition today, It's these people that you need to understand. These 17th century divines, these Caroline divines, these were extraordinary men. Now what is interesting is that they would hark back to the earliest days of the church. 200 years later, 300 years later, when the Oxford movement was beginning to grow in England, that is to say the high church, the Anglo-Catholic movement, they would hark back to the Caroline Divines as their inspiration. But if any of you come from the high church tradition within Anglicanism, if you come from a Smells and Bells church, I want you to understand that there is a profound difference between what the Caroline Divines taught and what the Anglo-Catholic or the Oxford Movement taught in the 1830s through the 1880s. There's a profound difference, regardless of what the Anglo-Catholics might say. So... What do we know about the Caroline Divines? Well, first of all, they believed that, yes, truth was of the utmost importance. Sola Scriptura, that the, the scriptures alone were the primary authority for the life of the church. In this sense, they were absolutely reformed. We said this was one of the great battle cries of the 16th, Protestant, 16th century Protestant Reformation, That it wasn't to be the magisterium of the church. It wasn't to be the Pope or the College of Cardinals. It was to be Scripture, the Bible, that was to be the ultimate authority for the life of the church. Now, in this, they agreed with the Puritans. But again, the Puritans believed that that Scripture alone had all of the answers and the Anglican Reformers recognized that, well, yes, the Bible certainly addresses a great many spiritual matters, but it doesn't address some other mundane matters, like what clergy should wear and so forth. And so they argued that you needed to look to other forms of authority if the Scripture was silent. You, you appealed to, for example, to tradition, the long tradition of the Church, the Catholic Church, and you could appeal to reason, informed by Scripture and tradition. So they believed in truth, the Caroline divines, but they also believed in beauty. They believed in beauty. Uh, Maybe you can understand it this way. One of the things that the Bible teaches us is that God makes himself known. This is called revelation. And the Bible speaks of two types of revelation. One is called general revelation or natural revelation, and the other is called special revelation. So what's general revelation? It's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, when he says that men are without excuse. He says, The wrath of God is being poured out against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their ungodliness suppress the truth. Because what may be known about God, he said, is plainly shown in the things that have been made. That's general revelation. That is to say, you cannot look at the created order At the order that exists in the universe, you cannot look at all of this and come to the conclusion that it all happened by chance or by accident, that this is just a cosmic accident. Paul says that simply is not true. You cannot look at the universe and say that. It's interesting to note that over the course of the 20th century, so many advances have been made in science today that the argument from general revelation is stronger now than at any point in history. So that's called general revelation. God making himself known in the things that have been made. Now, the Puritans certainly would have believed that. But the Puritans would have looked at the created order and seen God more as an engineer. You know, we need engineers. They make good automobiles and so forth. But while they can make the automobile go, they can't make the automobile beautiful. It takes somebody else with an artistic eye to do that. Well, the Caroline Divines believed that, yes, general revelation showed you that there was a God who ordered the universe. There's not chaos in the universe. We have laws, the laws of physics that govern the way we operate in this world. But when they looked at the world, they not only saw one who was an engineer, they saw one who was an artist. They, they saw the one who ordered the universe and put in place the law of gravity, yes, but they also saw the one who paints that magnificent sunset over the Ashley River. So the Caroline Divines were intent on combining truth along with beauty. They wanted to see God as the great architect of the universe, the great engineer, but also as the great artist, and that is exactly what they did. One of the great monuments of this time period is the building that you see on the screen. Anybody know what that is? Those of you who've already asked the question cannot answer. Anybody know what that is? It's St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Magnificent. Christopher Wren Church. A magnificent building. Now, how different that would have been from a Puritan meeting house? What you have in that building is a combination, a unique combination of both truth and beauty. That God is the architect, the engineer, but also the artist. What are the characteristics of this time period and the Caroline Divines? Well, first of all, they were high churchmen over and against the Puritans. Now, when I say high churchmen, this has nothing to do with ritual. All right. This has nothing to do with vestments, this has nothing to do with incense, this has nothing to do with sanctus bells, or anything like that. When I say high churchmen, what they believed was in the value of the church and its order. They believed in such things as the hierarchy of the church, that is a spiritual hierarchy. They believed in bishops, they believed in the prayer book, they believed in order in worship. So when we talk about high churchmen, that's really what they meant. They believed in truth and beauty being combined as opposed to mere austerity, which was something that had characterized the time of the protectorate. So they believed in magnificent buildings with all of the symbolism associated with it. They believed that symbols had value. Now, many of the Puritans believed that those symbols had become superstitious and they needed to be purged and done away. And it's true, symbols can become superstitious. You know, one of the reasons why during the medieval period that you were only to receive the communion on your tongue and not in your hands, well, one reason was because they didn't want to drop the host, but another reason was because people were taking the host home. They were taking it home. They were using it as a kind of talisman in their house to ward off evil spirits and so forth. And so the only way the priests knew that they were actually taking it is if he actually placed it on their tongue so that they swallowed it. So, yes, it's true that many of these things can become superstitious, and the Reformers were deeply concerned about that. But what the Caroline Divines wanted to do, and we've talked about this before, is they wanted to steer a middle course. They believed that the, the problem was always in the extremes. Roman Catholicism and all of its abuses on the one end of the spectrum and the austerity of the Puritans at the other end of the spectrum. What they were trying to find was that golden mean. What they were trying to find was that middle way, that via media, that perfect balance between Catholicism on this side and the reform movement on the other. And that's what the Caroline Divines were really all about. They were known not only for their study of Scripture, they were also known for their study of the Church Fathers. That's what's meant by patristic scholarship up there. They realized that they were not the only ones to encounter the Scripture, and they were not the only ones who had a monopoly on understanding the Scriptures. They recognized the value of history. And so when it came to the art of interpreting the Bible, what the Bible really meant, as close as you could get to the early church and the early church's understanding of what the Scriptures meant, that was key. And so they believed in going back and studying the early church fathers, people like Augustine, for example, and they became great scholars of the early church. As I said, they wanted to steer the middle course between the excessiveness of Puritanism and the excessiveness of Roman Catholicism. They were staunchly royalist. Now, that will be one of the things that will get them into trouble. All of these other things will make the Puritans a little uncomfortable, but it's the fact that they are staunchly royalists that will get the Caroline Divines into trouble. One of the Caroline Divines was Archbishop William Laud. He will be executed because of his loyalty to the king, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So, this had happened to Thomas Cranmer on another occasion because of his loyalty to Scripture. It's going to happen to Archbishop Laud because of his loyalty to the king. They are staunchly royalists. They believe that the king was God's chosen instrument. Now, after I ran through all of those monarchs last week and talked about how they had all of these heirs, but very few legitimate heirs, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, I have a question. And I said, What's your question? Were any of those kings really Christians? You might wonder. You might wonder. But what the Caroline Divines believed is that God can use a person in spite of themselves. How many of you believe that God can use a person in spite of themselves? Thanks be to God that he can. Otherwise, he'd never be able to use you and me. Of course, he uses us in spite of ourselves. And the Caroline Divines believed that God can use the king in spite of himself. The Caroline Divines recognized there is no such thing as a perfect form of government. Now, that may come as a big shock to us as Americans. But I'm here to tell you today, with the authority of God's word, there's no such thing as a perfect form of government. You know why? Why? Because there's no such thing as a perfect person. So God can use even imperfect means to produce his planned results. This was a great period of devotional writing. The Protestant reformers were wonderful when it came to doctrine. I always say that we needed both Martin Luther and John Calvin. Because you know what Luther did? Luther helped us to understand what was wrong with the medieval church. He, he helped us to understand how it is that we came into a relationship with God. He helped us understand that we needed to live holy lives. He helped us to understand that there is nothing that we can do to atone for our own sins. But I always imagine Martin Luther as the guy who comes and dumps the pieces of a puzzle on a table. Imagine one of those 10,000 piece puzzles. Luther's the guy that gives you all the pieces and he just puts it down there on the table and there they are. But John Calvin is the guy who comes along and gives you the box top (laughs) and shows you how the pieces are meant to fit together. He's the great systematic theologian. And we need those people. We need those people who can tell us how the doctrines fit together. But you know, sometimes when you're so enamored with doctrine, it can become a cold thing. It can become a a sterile thing. You can be an expert on justification, and sanctification, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't make any difference in your heart. At some point, the Christian faith has to move from here to here. Somebody once said, the greatest distance when it comes to salvation is not the distance between earth and heaven, it's the distance between the head and the heart. Now, let me just say this, salvation begins in the head. It actually begins in the head. Paul speaks about this. He said, we need to be renewed in our minds, transformed, he says, by the renewal of your minds, but it can't all be head knowledge. You can have all of the doctrine right and still not be a Christian. We're going to talk about somebody like that in just a little bit. I'm going to talk about John Wesley, who had all the doctrine right, but he had never had that strange warming of the heart. The Caroline Divines understood the doctrine. They were loyal to the doctrine. They really did believe in justification by grace through faith. They were not returning to Roman Catholicism. They didn't believe in transubstantiation. So they understood the doctrine but they also understood that that doctrine should move our hearts. It's not simply a matter about knowing about God, it's knowing God. And it's not even knowing God, it is loving God. It's falling in love with Him on a daily basis. And that's what the Caroline Divines believed in. And this was a period of great devotional writing. You can still find the writings of people like Archbishop Laud, even Charles I, incidentally. And one of the things that you will notice is that these are warm, engaging writings that show men and women who were dedicated to Christ, who loved him, and if necessary, were willing to lay down their life for him. So this was a period of emotional writing, and it should be an inspiration to us. You should read the Bible in an effort to understand it, but you should also read the Bible expecting that God is going to speak to you through it. So it's not just understanding it, it's also having God speak to you in such a way that it makes a difference in the way that you live your life. That was what the Caroline Divines were interested in. They were responsible for the restoration of the Book of Common Prayer. The last Book of Common Prayer, we said, was the Elizabethan Prayer Book in 1559. Uh, That prayer book gets outlawed, we said, during the reign of... um, Oliver Cromwell, in the period of the Protectorate, it had been outlawed. You could no longer conduct religious services according to the Book of Common Prayer. But in 1662, the prayer book is restored, and that will become the official prayer book of the Church of England. It is still the official prayer book of the Church of England, and it's likely to remain the official prayer book of the Church of England. Now, they have alternative services that they use, but this is still the official standard for all prayer books in the Church of England. And one of the reasons it's probably likely to stay this way is that it takes an act of parliament to change the Book of Common Prayer. That's true, because it's a state church. So it's not like some general convention or general synod of the church can get together and say, we don't like this, we want to have another book. In the American system, you can do that. You can't do that in England. It takes an act of Parliament. Can you imagine Congress getting together and trying to come up with a new prayer book? (laughs) So it is likely to remain the prayer book to this day. Incidentally, we are going to be getting a new Book of Common Prayer very soon. Ah, rest assured, folks. The one thing that is inevitable is change. Let me say something about the prayer book and alternative uses of the prayer book. Anglicans always get very verklempt when they begin to hear about changes to the prayer book. This certainly happened between what we call the old prayer book and the new prayer book. I want you to think about this. The new prayer book was published in 1979. What's new about that? That was a long time ago, folks, 1979. Some of you may be stuck in the 70s, but 1979 was a long time ago. And, of course, the 1979 prayer book got people upset because there were some changes to it. It was controversial, a right two, as opposed to just right one. I want you to understand the 1928 prayer book was controversial when it came out. It was referred to as the new prayer book. And you know why? One of the reasons it was controversial? It was the first American prayer book ever, brace yourselves, to have prayers for the dead. (laughs) Up to that point, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican tradition in North America never had prayers for the dead. Now imagine how controversial that was when the 1928 prayer book came out. So yes, we are now part of the Anglican Church of North America, and they have produced a new prayer book. And it is going to be mandated in every diocese, so brace yourselves. I'm just letting you know ahead of time so you can get ready for this. I know that all change is lost. Get ready for it. But here's the good news. This is a prayer book that is actually based upon the 1662 prayer book. So we're going back, really, in history and time to the doctrine... Of the 17th century. So, 1662 prayer book becomes the standard, the gold standard for all books of common prayer. Now, it's not just because the words of the liturgy. It's the doctrine that's contained therein. That's one of the things you need to understand about liturgy. The word liturgy means the work of the people. And this is one of the things that the Caroline Divines believed in that worship was to be your work as well as mine. You know, you go into some Protestant traditions, and what does worship consist of? You walk in there, there is a brief prayer, you sing a few hymns, and then there's normally a 45-minute sermon. Sometimes it's an hour-long sermon. So if you think we're long, 45 minutes to an hour long, then you have a prayer, sing a hymn, and it's over. Now, the problem with that way of worshiping, in my opinion, if there are any Presbyterians out there, I sincerely apologize. But one of the problems with that is this. It makes the congregation passive observers. It makes the fellow up front the main event. And if he's on, hallelujah. And if he's off, oh well, grin and bear it. But a liturgical service engages the congregation in the act of worship. So you are participants in this. You are engaged in the act of worship. God is center. So it is not the congregation. This is something to keep in mind. The congregation is not the audience. God is the audience in Anglican worship. You and I are the actors that are there for His benefit and for His glory and for His praise. That's what liturgy is meant to do. So when you come into church, don't think of yourself as, well, I'm here to see how I can be fed. No. These classes, Bible studies throughout the week, these are the things that feed you so that on Sunday, which is whose day? The Lord's Day, He is the focus of our worship. We come in and we do everything for His pleasure, for His glory, for His honor. Now, we may derive a benefit from that. That is true. But worship on Sunday is all about God, which is one of the reasons why the first words out of the celebrant's mouth on Sunday morning are not good morning, but what? Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It immediately takes your attention where? To God. To God. He is the focus. That's why we do what we do. We come into church, and in some churches there's a lot of glad-handing, there's a lot of visiting, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in our tradition, we come in, we kneel down, we say our prayers. Why? Because we are preparing to meet the Lord. So that is what liturgy is all about. And that's what the prayer book is designed to do. To help us engage in the act of worship. And that word, worship, is an interesting word. It comes from the Old English. It means worth-ship. To apply worth or value to someone or something. That's what we're doing on Sunday when we come into church. So you may get your batteries recharged for the next few days. Hallelujah. But really, this is about the Lord. So the Caroline Divines produce the gold standard of prayer books, the 1662 prayer book. They also produced the 1661 service of ordination, where they retained having a threefold order of ministry, bishops, priests, and deacons. And actually, if you read closely, what you discover is that there are four orders of ministers in the life of the church. There are bishops, there are priests, There are deacons, and who else? Lay people. Do you know you were ordained? When were you ordained? At the time of your confirmation, that's right. How does an ordination take place? Bishops have to lay hands on other bishops. It takes three bishops to make a bishop. That's the tradition. Three bishops to make a bishop. Three is a good number. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Three bishops to make a bishop. A bishop makes a priest How? By the laying on of hands. This goes back to the New Testament times. Paul speaks speaks to Timothy about the laying on of hands. He says, fan into flame the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. How are deacons made? A bishop lays on hands. Lay people also receive a laying on of hands. At the time of their confirmation, you stand before the bishop, you renew your baptismal vows, and he then what? lays hands on you, and there is a sense in which that is your ordination. You have a responsibility to go out and bear witness to Jesus Christ wherever you may be. And it's a very powerful thing when you think about it. Let me just go ahead and read you a quick section, if I can put my finger on it. I hadn't planned to do this. We're going to look at the Catechism for just a second This is on page 855 in the prayer book. And this question is asked. I don't know how many of you have actually read through the catechism. You could be thankful that we went to a new prayer book because under the 1928 prayer book, you had to memorize the catechism in order to be confirmed before the bishop. Maybe we'll bring that back. Our numbers will diminish, I'm sure. But here's the question. The catechism is a series of questions and answers. Here's the question. Who are the ministers of the church? Now, before I started this conversation with you, if I'd asked you that question, who are the ministers of the church, what would you have said? You guys. You guys with that caller, that dog collar. You guys are the ministers of the church. But listen to what the answer is. The ministers of the church are laypersons, bishops, priests, and deacons. And what I like to point out is that who comes first in the list? Lay persons. I was called to be a minister before I was ever ordained a deacon or a priest. The ministers of the church are lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. Now, here's the next question What is the ministry of the laity? So, here it is. What is your ministry? You want to know what your ministry is? I'm going to give it to you because this is official. This is this is not this is not Miller's opinion about anything. This this is this is, you know it's the prayer book. I mean so what else do you need? What is the ministry of the laity? The ministry of lay persons is to represent Christ and his church. To bear witness to him wherever they may be. And according to the gifts God has given them to carry on Christ's work of reconciliation in the world and to take their place in the life, worship, and governance of the church. That's your ministry. My ministry is a little bit different and I get paid for it, but your ministry is what it is. But that's your ministry. Think about that. Your ministry is to represent Christ and His church To bear witness to him wherever you may be. And according to the gifts given you by God, to carry on Christ's work of reconciliation in the world and to take your place in the life, worship, and governance of Christ's holy Catholic Church. These are the things that the Caroline Divines recovered that were in danger of being lost. And they would chart the course of Anglicanism for centuries to come. Some would say right down to the present day. Now, sometimes what happens, you know, is that people have short-term memory loss. They forget these things. And that's why reformations are necessary to reform and to refresh our memory and to bring us back. And that is really what this movement of Anglicanism in North America is designed to do. It is designed to bring us back to our roots. It's very easy to wander off. It's very easy to experience mission drift. That early church that started off so powerfully in the book of Acts, it eventually got off track, and somebody had to... Shout out that there was a problem. People like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Philip Melanchthon. People like the Caroline Divines, Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley. They had to bring the church back. But the process of reformation is an ongoing process. We've never arrived, and it is always the tendency of human beings to go far afield, because all we like sheep have gone astray. And that is our tendency, to constantly wander away. And so we have to constantly be reforming. This is what the reformers refer to as semper reformatum Constantly, always, always reforming. And the Caroline Divines were part of that. Here were their leading lights, and I'll lead you with this. Their leading lights were people like Thomas Ken, the non-juring Bishop of Bath and Wells, William Laud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Jeremy Taylor, one of the great devotional writers of this time period. George Herbert, you've probably heard of him, one of the great poets of this time period, but also a clergyman, the rector of St. Andrews, Bemerton and Wiltshire. And King Charles himself. King Charles himself, who wrote a great devotional work that was published posthumously and became a classic in that time period and beyond. It was a desire to recognize that God is the author of all truth. He is also the author of all beauty. And that's one of the unique contributions that Anglicanism makes. That truth is a wonderful glorious, and beautiful thing. And when you encounter God, you encounter the one who is the way, the truth, the life, but one who is imminently beautiful. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You use people in spite of themselves. We thank you that you can use kings and monarchs in spite of themselves, that you work all things together for good, and we thank you for the life, witness, and ministry of the Caroline Divines. They did. They chartered a middle way between excesses because that's where the problem always lies. It's interesting that your son, Jesus Christ, didn't get along with the Pharisees, who were the conservatives of his day, but nor did he get along with the liberals of his day, the Sadducees. Jesus steered that middle course. He found that balance that is so elusive to us as human beings. We thank you for this glorious tradition that is ours. Faithful to the Word, but also at the same time, wanting to uphold the fact that the Word and truth are beauty indeed. Grant us the grace, Lord, to always be reforming, to always be watchful for mission drift, for that tendency that is ours to Go off the path and help us to, like the Caroline Divines, come back and find balance for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you.